Welcome to today's episode of the Bench to Boardroom podcast. I am your host, Cynthia Steele, and today's guest is a very dear friend of mine who I worked with for a few years. Uh, we both got our first jobs out of our postdocs at the same company in the same position. In fact, I interviewed her for her position, and uh, her name is Dr. Alice Wise-Jackson. Uh, Alice is originally from Ireland, and she did her... Um, undergraduate and her PhD work in Ireland, and then did her postdoc at the University of Washington in neuroscience, where she met her husband and built her family. And she still lives now working as a medical science liaison. And I really wanted to have Alice on because a lot of trainees are very interested in the MSL position. Um, they don't necessarily know what it's all about, but they they know it's something that they hear a lot about, and it sounds really intriguing. And so as you'll hear from Alice and I, we both did that job. There's some really good parts to it, and there's some parts that you eventually start to tire of, let's say. So without any further ado, my interview with Dr. Alice Weiss-Jackson. Dr. Alice Weiss-Jackson, welcome to the Venture Boardroom Podcast. Hi, thanks, Cynthia. Good to see you. I know, this is great. Yeah, we haven't talked to each other in a couple of years, right? Except for through text. Yes, <laughs> COVID and babies. Yes, yes. <laughs> babies will do that. So um, we, will, we will get to the babies, but I know you have a, what, a four-month-old, and how old is, uh, is Joyce? Joyce, she is... Uh, two and a half ish wow. now there's two years between them so two years to four months okay wow my, my last guest uh Jacqueline Duvall also had them uh two years apart and she so they're like three and one now and she said it's just chaos constantly it's just yeah always chaos and I asked her you know is she like the dog in the burning room just going this is fine and she said mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. see I'm still trying to like maintain the like air of my house is still tidy all the time and I still like cleanliness. So I'm trying to teach the toddler to like be a mini me. Yeah. I don't know how well it's working. She tries. <laughs> I think that's a more long-term experiment. You're going to have to let us know how, the, the, how that one turns out. <laughs> yeah. I've seen her with other kids and she's pretty bossy, but by herself, like anyway. <laughs> so she's already taking after her mother. I love it. <laughs> I don't know what that she's says a girl about who knows what she wants. I appreciate that. <laughs> so for our listeners who don't know you, uh, please introduce yourself. Okay. Um, I'm going to do what I normally do when I'm giving a presentation to physicians and say I am Irish, which is the accent. And it saves people trying to figure out what's going on. Um, I moved to Seattle seven years okay. ago. So after I completed my PhD in Ireland. Okay. So I moved for my postdoc. Um, I guess, where do you want me to start? What, what, well, so let's, start? So, okay, let's start back in Ireland. So you obviously born and raised in, in Ireland and you, uh, I guess, talk about your, your education there and up to your PhD. Sure. So I went to, I did my schooling and undergrad. Um, I went to a college called Trinity College Dublin. Okay. For my undergraduate, I did a neuroscience degree. Um, 
actually, I don't know if you have European listeners, but um, the college system there is a little bit different. I went straight into a science degree and then I specialized my third and fourth year in neuroscience. So all of my four-year degree was all science-based, which makes you pretty specialized, which means that your PhD as a result is a little bit different. Um, After graduating, um, Trinity's a a good university, but it's very, very academic. Mm -hmm. And they say at the end of your year, everybody thinks they're like, basically no one thinks that they can get a job apart from if they have a master's or a further research or do a PhD. So I remember coming out of my undergraduate being like, I'm unemployable, of course, which is absolutely ridiculous. But I I thought that. So I I was supposed to start a PhD, the funding fell through, and I ended up working as a waitress for 10 months. Oh, bummer. The funding for your project Um, or or your scholarship or your stipend? um, The stipend. So how it works in uh, Ireland, UK, is that your supervisor has the money and then they hire a person, has the money for a project. Generally, that's how it works. Has the money for a project and then they hire someone to do that Mm. project. So I had been offered a project with my undergraduate supervisor um, and he was a Novartis um, researcher. He had, he was doing good research. I liked Mm -hmm. it. And he'd offered me a place. And I remember I was traveling for the summer and I was going to come back and start my PhD. And it's great. And then I got this um email while i was in belize of all places being like sorry funding fell through uh good luck <laughs> um <laughs> and that point where you were like um, i'm just gonna stay here in belize and like teach surfing uh, i was working with monkeys and manatees at the time i was like volunteering so it was pretty oh, amazing yeah. but i was like i'm gonna you know let's have a few i had a few beers that yeah, night yeah. And, <laughs> I went traveling and like, I was like, well, I guess I'll just go home and figure it out. I'll get a job and apply for other jobs. Mm. It took a while to do it. Like I knew I wanted to do a PhD at that okay. point. Um, and, uh, unfortunately PhDs generally start on the academic timeline. So I was coming home in November. There weren't yeah. any jobs. There weren't any PhDs to be had, but I, I could see. So I applied for everything and anything. Um, and you know when it rains and pours finally when it came um about may i finally started getting kind of callbacks and someone offered me this place my my phd position that i subsequently took so um he was great it was a place i went and moved down to cork which is in the southwest corner of ireland and it was a project that he had it was a three-year phd again very different to yeah you're looking at me oh my god (laughs) Um, okay I, I knew one woman in graduate school who got her PhD in four years and she did it by basically sleeping in the residence quarters in like the burn unit. Like she worked constantly and I think she still got done in like four and a half or something. So yeah. what It's just different. Like I didn't have, I had some, um, some credits to take, but not okay. a lot. I didn't really, in fact, actual fact, I signed up to teach labs and to give demonstrations. Mm-hmm. Um, and when my supervisor found out about it, he was really okay. mad because he was like, this is taking time away from your project, True. which is what you were being paid yeah. to do. I, I signed up because I got extra money. Yeah, right. So, right. I was not a PhD student and I, I needed the money. It's nice to know that they're broke um, in Ireland I, as well as in the US. We're, we're <laughs> are broke worldwide. 
yeah i was on uh, eighteen thousand for my phd and i was that was actually one of the higher end stipends so oh. so funny um but i lived in a very cheap city um i think at one point i paid rent of like 300 so i like there were a lot of things going yeah, for me yeah. you learn to budget That's one thing the phd does yeah. for you so sorry we're getting sidetracked uh i signed i moved to cork started this phd yeah it was three-year phd and i had to be in and out like i had funding for three years as i say european academia is different okay. um it was a lab i was my supervisor's 27th phd student i believe and he retired shortly after i finished um he had it dialed down. He knew exactly what he wanted and who he was looking for. He didn't care that I wasn't necessarily top of my class. I was just always really like, for instance, when I was giving my like resume to him, I got, I did fine in um, my end of year exams, but I always came really well. I always did really, really well in my projects, sure. for instance. Okay. Right. And he was like, that's what I care about. I want to know that you're good at projects and you can get through. Okay. And then he, you chat to someone and you can find out whether or not they're a good fit for your lab. So, um, it was in court, which I didn't necessarily want to be, but it was a small city. I was going to be there for three years. I was there to get my PhD done and I did it. Wow. So I moved down and it was in ophthalmology, which I knew nothing about, okay. um, absolutely nothing about. And I just fell in love with it. It was looking for, um, I, I like, I refer to ophthalmology as like lazy science as How a joke, you? as a joke. <laughs> but I liked it because I could look at the eye in isolation. I didn't have to worry about the rest of the body. True. You can just you do something to the body, but all you care about is what's happening in the eye. And it's a pretty protected organ. So if you inject something into the eyeball, it's quite unlikely to go up unless it's specific things. Obviously there's caveats. Um, yeah. You don't have to worry too much no, about that's it. True. Isn't it true that the the eye is the only place where you can see essentially into the brain um, without making any sort of incision? Because the retina is technically part of the diencephalon, I think, right? It's all from neural crust cells. So I, as I understand it, the oh, retina hmm. and the optic nerve, the optic nerve, sorry, we're going to get really geeky here. The optic nerve is technically myelinated hmm. by oligodendrocytes and has all the yeah. is surrounded by the three meninges so technically yeah if you look into the eye you're sort of kind of looking into the brain well your photoreceptors are all neurons well, oh yeah they're so. all neurons. it's all except for you know your Mueller cells are basically glia but otherwise yeah yeah that's awesome um it's i liked it and what i subsequently learned at conferences and such is that a lot of people who are working on the brain end up in ophthalmology as like a test subject like sure. does it work here and then maybe we can go into the okay brain. yeah so I, I loved it. I, I did a three year PhD there. I think there's, you can, my opinion is that there's two ways to do science in academia. Okay. You can do my supervisors, my PhD supervisor's way of publishing a lot in lower tier journals. Um, and so for examples, for example, I was first author on five papers throughout my PhD. Um, and then like lower, to your authors on a couple of other ones as well. Mm -hmm. Or you can work your ass off and get maybe um, first author on a big name journal, sure. which realistically, if you're going for a Nobel prize, I know which way we should go. 
I'm not that smart. Okay. So, which do you think is more beneficial? Having lots of papers by the time you're done or having like a nature paper? Um, that's a good question. Probably if you're going, it depends what your end game is. Academia, the nature paper, but how many people are going to get a nature paper out of their PhD? Very few. Sure. Sure. So I know what I would rather have rather than going for, for the, even the impact factors of eight, nine, Mm -hmm. 10, for instance. And one of those, I had five at three to six. Um, yeah, it's an interesting way of looking at science. Yeah. For me, it made my job hunt pretty easy. Yeah. I knew that I was very employable because I had I had a track record of being published. Absolutely. It also made my transition to my postdoc lab incredibly difficult. Oh, dear. Okay. Uh, because my postdoc supervisor did not work the way that my PhD supervisor did. So let's, for, for a second, and before we move on to your postdoc, I do want to ask you, because I ask all of my guests this question, while you were busting your butt over the course of three years in Cork on your PhD, when you had those days that you were just going to drop it all and throw it all away, what were you going to go off and do? What was your dream job? I have thought about this question so much since I heard you ask it to other guests. I don't know if I had okay. one. Okay. I really don't, don't know. Like, um, I always wanted to go off traveling and I think I had like this alternate life of being a woman about town, living in New York city and like being a business exec and wearing cute little shirts and mini skirts or whatever. But it never, it was just a different life. It wasn't the career path that I'd chosen. I I did a science degree. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I'd worked as a waitress and I knew God, I didn't want to do that again. Um, Yeah. Huh. So I don't know. This might be interesting, though, because if you think about it, you you told us that your univer- your time in university was all very science based, and so by the time you get to grad school, like you're you're pretty committed at that point. Whereas in you know in American PhD system, you you do your four years, and a lot of that time is taken up by um, general credits, you know, you, for some reason you still have to take another English class and you have to take a social science and a foreign language. At least I did in my, my school, I went to a Lutheran school. So we needed, um, eight credits of religion courses, including like religion 101, you know, so there was a whole lot of like extra padding that went in there. And so by the time I got to grad school, um, you know, yeah, the, we have the two years of like just taking again your fundamentals, like your biochemistry, your physiology, you know, um, immunology, things like that. And then by the time you get to your uh, comprehensive exam, that seems like that's when your PhD actually starts, because that's kind of when our PhD technically starts. Once you pass your comprehensive exam, now you're a PhD candidate. But leading up to that time has just been so much fluff and so much. And how, how long does it take you to take your comprehensive exam? Um, oh, like how many years are you a PhD student before you do that? So you, you do two years and then you take your comps at the end of two years. And yeah, that's how, that's how it goes, you know, and my niece actually passed her comps just a couple of months ago and we had a, we had a big, uh, a big celebration over text. Cause that's a huge hurdle. Once you, once you pass your comps, then, you know, you're, 
you're officially a PhD candidate. And that's kind of when like the clock starts, so to speak, you know, on your, on your PhD wow. time. So leading up to all that time, you have all this fluff and you have all this time to think about kind of the things that you want to do. So I feel like maybe you bypassed all of that. Yeah, I think I did, which is probably where you get the, the thought of I'm going to give this all up because you've been at it for four or five years and you're not getting paid and you're in there every day and things don't work and you need whereas I had an end in sight the whole time I was constantly being told like my supervisor had a paper year he wanted everyone to have at least two papers if not three by the end of their PhD and that was going to be your three chapters for your dissertation and then okay so you like did not have time to no uh-huh. <laughs> okay but that's how I work well so I like I, I liked it I didn't want to be in the lab if I wasn't doing something so while that's going on I, are you feeling at that time that you definitely wanted to go into industry or did you did you enjoy that not at really? all okay. no I because it was I loved it so much um and it was successful obviously things didn't work of course things don't work and you pivot but um because I liked it so much I thought I was going academic the whole hog. Um, I was like, this is what I want. I'm going to create my own lab. I'm going to find all these new medications. I'm going to do disease research. Um, and I'm going to go as a European researcher, you should work in the States if you're going to go into academia. Um, which is you absolutely should this, the science going on in the States and in American universities is world-class it's amazing and that's why i moved um i was lucky i had a green card i could basically move anywhere in the states so so i didn't have to get a phd that could also have a non-resident um person so i I was in a really nice position um but i thought i was going to academics so i went and applied for postdocs um and at this point this is where you start making those decisions like i and this is where the dichotomy between the European and the, uh, the US system really played out into my career path. My supervisor knew that I wanted to do academia and he was supportive of it. He actually generally directed people to towards industry. Um, yeah, I know that's quite different to what a lot of people I've heard. Um, but he knew I wanted to do uh, academia. My track record was decent and I loved the eye. So I was going to apply for ophthalmology postdocs and he, he with the best of intentions said no don't do that because as soon as you go into a postdoc in ophthalmology that means you're only ever going to get grants in ophthalmology um and in europe that's a limited pool of resources in the us there's a lot of money in ophthalmology in europe there isn't and at that time i didn't know that my life was going to be in the us um so i took note of that that it seemed like good advice to me and in europe you do multiple postdocs so you get the training in a lot of different oh, in the us you go into your postdoc and that's kind of where your career takes you right um so i applied for postdocs in areas that i didn't necessarily I, I didn't really it was my lack of knowledge that i applied for postdocs in areas that i didn't necessarily care that much okay. about okay <laughs> so it was a mistake mm-hmm. right but you live near learn. Yeah. Um, and I'm subsequently grateful for that mistake because it made my um, transition out of academia much quicker. Sure. Oh, dear. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, so I moved. Yeah, I applied for postdocs. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Want me to continue yeah, on with please. this story? Okay, so what what was happening was um, I was coming towards the end of my PhD. I was starting to write up. I was finishing up a few bits and pieces. Um, and I went to a conference in Seattle. Um, and in ophthalmology, the biggest conference, in ophthalmology research, the biggest conference of the year is a conference called Arvo. And that year it was in Seattle. And I just really wanted to go. Seattle to someone living in West Coast Ireland is like... A, hub, a metropolitan hub i loved it i really wanted to go um so i got some funding to go and i flew there by myself i presented my phd research no one else from my lab was there so i just had the week to myself in this glorious city the sun was shining it was like 75 80 every day i was out having cocktails by myself i was what people watching i was seeing all the different neighborhoods no one needed me to do anything yeah yeah um, there by myself i could enjoy the lectures and then go and do things by myself afterwards and i just fell in love with the city so while i was there i did actually fly down to san francisco for a postdoc interview in UCSF. Okay. um and this lab i think that pa those papers are subsequently being published in nature i can't even remember what they were doing now but they were doing something really cool with mitochondria yeah yeah <laughs> um and i um I got offered that position actually. Um, and, but I remember flying home being like, God, I really like Seattle though. Like didn't love San Francisco. I had a friend who heard the postdoc salary and she said, you're going to have a hard time living in San Francisco on that salary. A little bit, um, a little bit, which is funny given Seattle's just as, well, not quite as expensive, but pretty, pretty expensive, expensive as well. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, and she told me, show me this so i started thinking and i started looking at postdocs in seattle and i found this one that was kind of a fit for me it had glia and i worked on glia in the mm -hmm. eye um so i applied i flew back to seattle for that um for the interview and then uh, the rest is kind of history um i subsequently i basically told that supervisor hey i have a position that is going to go to somebody else you need to offer me this job or i wasn't going to go down to san francisco yeah. um I, I could do that because i knew i had a strong cv um the lab was not necessarily a good fit for me but at the time i didn't care i wanted to be in seattle yeah. and i thought i thought this is what you did you just got a couple of different postdocs i was like i could transition if i need to um so then I moved to Seattle. I took that job, moved to Seattle, yeah. started a postdoc in an area of research that I, it's interesting to talk about for a little bit, but it wasn't my uh, passion. I remember the few years, every time that Arvo was in Seattle, the weather was glorious. The sun was out, like you're saying, it was sunny. It was like in the seventies. I mean, it was phenomenal. And yeah. as, as two people who have both lived in the Pacific Northwest, at least for a time, um, that is not- Everybody's willing to move. Everybody wants to move to Seattle when it's like and that. It's not yeah. indicative. You, you do not see Mount Rainier all the time. Unlike what no. uh, you might believe based on your five days there when it was gloriously sunny. Yeah. And you're in Portland, you do not see Mount Hood all the time. It's, it's a miracle. No, but I like seasons. I'm Irish. I have no problem with um cold rain i i don't i like seasons like that and then i enjoy the summers. yeah of course oh my gosh well the summers in the pacific northwest are unsurpassed they're glorious yeah the, hi the hiking the the food Ugh, 
the green. Oh my gosh. I miss it. I, I truly I miss it every day. It's just, it was so expensive. And there's, some, there's something so magical about them because you know, you have them for a short snippet of time that you need to make the most True. of them. And everybody wants to meet up in the evenings to have wine in the back garden mm. and go hiking at the weekends because everyone then goes into hibernation yes. for the winter. Yes. Although, you know, again, when, when we lived there, my, my, my husband did get a little tired of just constant drizzle and wiping muddy dog paws and everything uh, else. It was just got, got to be a little too much. So that's why fair. we live in Florida now where we have the opposite problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. so the, no, I don't mind it. Yeah. So you're in your postdoc and you're, it was a neuroscience postdoc or what were you researching there? Yeah, I was looking at um, manipulation of the brain and how it affects diabetes and obesity management. Okay. It, I would say it's a really interesting topic for to discuss for 10 sure. minutes. Unfortunately, the models that we have and uh, where we are in terms of the science, isn't. it makes it really difficult to study that mm -hmm. question. Um, so a lot of I a lot of my time was spent on troubleshooting methods, on checking out new mouse models, um, and what I learned was it made me realize how much I didn't know. So I came out of my PhD unbelievably cocky and like I can get a job anywhere, yeah. um, and then I realized rapidly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Rapidly realized that you are not the smartest person in this room, and. <laughs> um, wow you haven't thought this through uh and when uh, like the same thing happened to me alice the same thing really no, okay, no it did the same thing happened to me because when i did my defense like my parents were there my sister was there and like one or two of my friends like completely outside of grad school and then like people came and i gave this amazing presentation that i've rehearsed like dozens of times and brand new suit and brand new heels and i was totally feeling it you know and i uh gave this great presentation and then afterwards i truly i felt like yes i can me, take on the world you know behold you know <laughs> and oh oh but then i went into the clothes defense where it was just me and my committee and they they shot that down so fast oh. just boom right back down to earth you know my i still remember my mentor asked me the last question he asked me was to draw my, my PhD was, uh, involving, did involve statin drugs. So it didn't involve the cholesterol biosynthetic pathway. And so he did ask me to draw the structure of mevalonate, which is the first step after, after, uh, HMG and, uh, HMG coa reductase. No, sorry. HMG coa reductase is the enzyme acetylacetyl-CoA and it's something, something. Something, something. This is going to bother me now. But anyway, the two components come together to form HM, uh, to form HMG-CoA and then form mevalonate. And that's when the cholesterol biosynthetic pathway gets kicked off. And he asked me, draw mevalonate. And I got up to the board and I'm trying to draw it. And he just would go, nope. And I erase it. Do it again. Nope. I erase it again. Nope. Sit down. I was, I, I was deflated. And the worst part, the worst part was after I left the room so they could deliberate, at one point I heard them laughing. And all I could think of was like, they, 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 they can't, right. They, they can't bail me. Can 
I mean, how, how would they explain it to everybody? They can't fail me. You know, like I, I just gave the, this like incredible presentation. I, they can't fail me now, you know? And I, I, oh my God, I was having a full blown panic attack. And then they called me back in the room and I did notice that they were passing around a form and they were signing. And then someone finally turned to me and said, congratulations. And I just, Congratulations, Dr. Steele. I was so deflated at the end of that day. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then we had a party afterwards, and everyone had champagne, and they were like, yay, congratulations. And I was like, mm-hmm. I was like not into it at that point. I was so tired. So I, I hear you. I hear you. I think everyone has those moments where you just go from being like, I know my stuff. I'm good at what I do. Let me at it. I can help you. And then just, you know, Wow. I just I lived in a bubble yeah. where it was a complete bubble and I came rapidly back down to earth and that's a good thing yeah. um it needed to happen so is this what you meant when this... you said that your your PhD mentor had a very different approach than your postdoc mentor yes my postdoc mentor like our lab meetings I'm not kidding could go on for six okay. hours um and it, it was there at least food not always oh. no not, actually rarely <laughs> like oh. um it was just different and that's not how i work it wasn't it wasn't a great yeah. fit he's a great scientist he's an excellent scientist mm -hmm. doing a very difficult job it wasn't a great fit for us um and what ultimately what happened was um when i finally got given my first grant mm -hmm. when you know you spent your postdoc you spend your time applying for grants and writing research proposals and uh, again i was writing research proposals on a topic that i was not passionate about at yeah. all and that obviously came across um i also just didn't know what i was writing about it was really difficult it was difficult science yes. so um anyway someone said hey i think we i think she can do this let's give her some money to do her own research and when everyone else was more excited about it than i was i was like this i've got i've got to get out that's a moment and at that point i was just i was just ready to be done with earning so little money and <laughs> working 60 70 80 hour weeks and there's a look you can spend a lot of time talking about the pros and cons of academia um sure. for me it wasn't where i wanted to stay all right so then how did you uh, so where did you go to hunt for jobs and how did you find uh ultimately where we met oh, which was your first job outside yeah. academia yeah we did and i have such fond memories of uh meeting you in that interview and you being so excited about my Same. phd and us Same. geeking out about eyeballs um yeah so i think i did the standard i didn't really know many people who'd done industry in the us mm -hmm. or actually very few so because i'd moved from um a real pharmaceutical hub where most people who had phds were being employed on lines or various manufacturing or whatever yeah. it was um and for me that wasn't i didn't want to go back onto a bench into a bench scientist position yeah. so i think i was just done after those two years of my postdoc i didn't want to do it anymore. Sure. um so i started researching on i think it was just google phd what do i do <laughs> um and the msl position medical science liaison kept coming up time and time again and it was one of these like so you're a scientist who likes to talk to people and you like the research and you can explain it in layman's terms um and it just seemed interesting. I love traveling. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a high travel job. Clearly, I like talking. Um, we both do. <laughs> we both do. <laughs> 
and I like having conversations. I'm a, I'm a people person. Mm -hmm. So um, this seemed like a good fit for me and uh, it paid a hell of a lot better than a postdoc did. When I, when I got my quote for my MSL salary, I think I actually wept because, <laughs> because it was just, you know, wait, I'm sorry. You're going to, you think I'm worth how much, you know, cause you, you spend so much time in academia feeling like so small and you know, you're, you're fighting so hard and you're working so hard. And you know, when someone finally says like, well, this is what we think your expertise is worth. It just, it, it just really strikes you in a very different way. So. Cynthia, I had that realization on, and you were there, um, the very first um, drinks reception I went to with BNL, yeah. and it was a BNL host ex executive reception. We were inviting our doctors along. And sorry, I use BNL. Um, I worked for a company called Bash yes. Mom. Um, that's how I met yes. Cynthia. I actually interviewed Alice. And yes. <laughs> because it was a great interview. Well, yeah, it really was, obviously. <laughs> It pretty much went along these yeah, this lines, is, right? This is uh, kind of how it went. <laughs> yeah. I think I was shocked. I came out like, I think I got that job. Um, I think I was shocked when the 30 minutes were up. And I was like, no, we're not done talking. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's when you know it's a good interview. Uh, so I had this I had this experience of going into a bachelor hosted executive reception and being handed a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. And all these people, all my colleagues kept coming up to me being like, Alice, you're the new hire. We're so excited that you're here. And I had been flown in mm -hmm. and I had been put up in this gorgeous hotel and I, every single, like I got a taxi to the airport. Like it was, I was out. I just couldn't put into words how special that all made me feel. And I don't know if that's necessarily a good uh, a reflection on the, obviously it's a good reflection on the company. Yes. It was great that the company did that, but actually it's a really poor reflection on academia and how you were made, I was made to feel like I needed to fight for my position there every single day, yeah. which I think you put it in a different podcast as postdocs are cheap labor. Yeah. Unfortunately. Like, why are we made to feel that way when you're working your butt off mm -hmm. day in, day out mm -hmm. to progress both the labs route and your own career and yeah. So I, I looked for MSL positions. No, is, is the conclusion of what happened. But no, there. I mean, I, I think I, I think I've covered this also in my in my podcast with Sarah. But you know, when you when you transition out, it is kind of amazing when you start. Um, and and I, I completely agree. It's a sign of a good company. I think you know the the team that we are part of at, at Baushalom was really really wonderful. And you know the, yeah. the the salespeople that we worked with and the marketing people we worked with were just all phenomenal. But you know um, it's it's different when you go into a job and you you hand in a deliverable and they say, "Wow, this is great. Thank you so much." Or you provide some insights and they say, "Oh, wow." I never thought about that before, you know, and, and you start getting this positive feedback. And this is where I won't necessarily use the word ego as a bad thing, but this is where your ego starts to build up a little bit. And that's a good thing because I think in academia, we're so trained to you know be the good worker bee, you know, and try not to make yourself too famous, try not to make yourself too visible, you know, and in a lot of ways, you're not supposed to want some of these things, like you're saying, you know, you go to a, a reception at a beautiful hotel and someone hands you a glass of wine and they want to talk about science. I mean, like, that's not supposed to be part of your experience, you know, but, but it can be. And when it does mm -hmm. happen, you're just, it, it just is this feeling like, wow, I, I knew there was something better out here. And I knew I wasn't crazy for thinking that. So I, okay, so and 
Well, what gets me is uh, we had all these, they're obviously everyone's trying to keep people in academia. And I understand that we need academic we really scientists. Do. I have a good friend who is now a professor in Harvard. She is a killer scientist and she is made for this, but she works unbelievably hard and she is made to research those questions. And we need people like her and many others. I just wasn't made for yeah. it. <laughs> um, and that's okay. That is okay. I wish they made those. I wish they made it easier to stay, though. So when in in Seattle, and I was in the University of Washington, we'd have all these talks about why to stay in academia, and a lot of it was like the flexibility, and I can create my own questions. And I think in academia, in sorry, in industry, you can do that to a sense to a, to a point as well. Obviously, you have a job to do, but you can mold your own career path and how you want to do a job and everybody does a job slightly differently. Like every MSL, for instance, does a job completely differently and it's fine so long as you get the job done. Absolutely. And we, you and I worked with some real characters who did things very differently yeah. from how we did them. Yeah. You and I worked very similarly. We so, we did. <laughs> you know, so, so yeah. let, let's, let's pick up and talk about the medical science liaison job, because that is something that a lot of students hear about, it sounds phenomenal because you, like you say, you travel, you meet people, you talk about mechanism of action of drugs, and um, you get paid really well to do that. So why? Right. So I guess like, let me ask you, like, what what is what has been your experience in the in the MSL position, and what did you really like, and what do you what what did you come to not like so much? What's what's, what's fantastic about the about the position? It is a job for, I think we've discussed it before, ambitious people and lazy yes. people. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes, it is. So ambitious. What I loved is you learn the whole medical affairs organization. You learn clinical, you learn, or not even medical, just medical affairs. You learn the whole organization as pharma as a whole. You learn to work with sales, marketing, R&D, um, clinical managed care it depends on your job it depends on your company that you work for um as to the responsibilities that you have and the drug that you're working for um i work in rare disease these days so i do a very different job to one that i did at bausch and Lomb. um but i loved that aspect of it so you're working with a lot of different people types and a lot of different you're pulled into a lot of different things at any one time so you're not just um, learning an aspect of science and then repeating it time and time, time again to various doctors. There's a lot more to it, which I liked. Mm -hmm. um, the travel initially was great. Uh, it can wear on yeah. you. Um, I, as we discussed, I now have two young ones at home. So it, for me, being on the road that much is not as feasible anymore. So at BNL, I had 13 states. I was traveling three nights a week, at least every mm -hmm. week. Um, and I just can't do that anymore. Um, it's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like being home. I like seeing my family. Yeah. Um, that's good. You still like your children. That's good. <laughs> right. <laughs> Apparently I wanted a bath time. Who yeah, knows? Yes. Um, so, and it depends on there are some people lifetime MSLs who like doing it and they like learning a new disease state and like learning a new drug every time. I'm not going to be one of those. I, I, I'll be put it out there, but it does have um, 
if you wanted to go that route, it has a lot of flexibility and you can create a schedule and do the job how you want to do. So for some people, it's an excellent lifetime job. Mm -hmm. The disadvantage I see to the MSL job is it's a hard transition outside, out to out of the MSL mm -hmm. role. Um, especially if you take multiple MSL uh, jobs, okay. people suddenly see you as a medical scientist um, and they don't want you outside of that because you don't have the nuts and bolts of all the other things that you're working yeah. on. So you might work for clinical development, for instance, but you don't know the day in, day out of that job. Mm. Um, it's not impossible. By no means is it impossible to get a job outside of the MSL role, but it is a harder route. Um, I think for me, it was learning that if you want to advance within the MSL role or you want to advance within medical affairs in general, I mean, what our manager at the time told me during my performance review was, well, you know, eventually you become you know, senior MSL and then maybe like an executive MSL or a medical director like you are now. And maybe eventually you, you, you lead your own team. And I remember thinking at the time, like, that's, that seems a little limiting. I'm not sure if that's where I want to go. But I want to go back to what you and my husband say all the time, which is this is a great job for ambitious people and for lazy people because you know, as you said, you you could you could make your schedule, you can go visit your doctors and do your spiel and have nice dinners and stay away from home and you know that's you can you can make perfectly good money doing that. Or you can do what you and I have done, which is meet as many people as possible, make as many connections as possible, talk to the talk to people about the research, learn about new disease states, learn about new drugs, and then use that as a springboard into something else. Mm -hmm. And I'll be perfectly honest, my last, the last two jobs that I've had have come as a result of connections that I made through my time at Bachelon. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's not, it's a wonderful, one. it's not easy, no, no, it's but not easy. It is absolutely but then again, if you're making the transition from academia to MSL, that's a really tough transition. Big as well. time. Um, and maybe we should discuss that because there's so many people I get reached out to all the time about people in academia, postdocs who are like, I want to be an MSL. How do I yeah. do it? And there's no easy answer, but I spoke to maybe 10 different people who were MSLs at the time, just trying to get information on it. And it, it frustrated me when I'm talking to recruiters and they were like, well, nobody's going to hire you as an MSL. Maybe you should go do something different mm. first, like a medical writer or whatever which is nonsense. They just want, of course you can do an MSL position. It might be harder to get. Yeah. And you have to have a company who's willing to take a chance on someone who doesn't have yeah. experience, but both you and I did it. We went straight. We both did. Yeah. Um, so uh, for anyone doing that transition, don't give up. You can do it. Don't sell yourself short either. It might take a while. It took me eight months maybe to land my role of like really solid job hunting. But I also, um, I don't know if you did this differently, Cynthia. I um, I applied for anything and everything, which I shouldn't have done. It was a waste of my time. Okay. Like I applied for cardiovascular MSLs. I know nothing about the heart. Why on earth was I doing that? No one would have hired me. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do it that way. Um, right? I, I, I actually made it. I made a connection at Bausch & Lomb before I applied for the position. And so that's how I learned about the product that we were going to be discussing the mechanism of. And then from there, he put me in touch with some 
people who are now mutual friends of ours. And that's how I ended up getting the position. So uh, for me, it came about because of an initial connection. But um, but certainly I've known a lot of people who have done what what you say. They just blanket the field, you know, and and, and, you know, this this most recent interview that I did with Jacqueline Duvall, one of the things that she said was, look, if you think you might be a good fit for a position, just go for it. You know, I mean, the only Mm -hmm. thing that you're wasting is a little bit of time. You know, a little bit of your own time to revise your resume or revise your cover letter or whatever, shift some things around. But if that doesn't bother you, then, I mean, try it, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I would still encourage people, you know, if you think that this is something you might want to do, I would say, yeah, shoot out an application and see what happens. But don't don't apply for things that you just, you know, you wouldn't like. Like, you know, I could never be a cardiovascular MSL. I I would not have nearly the expertise to do anything related to oncology. You know, it might be interesting. Well, I guess I hadn't realized like an MSL role is, it's a big expense to a company. Um, They put a lot of trust in us. You are handed a company card, a company credit card and told go visit people and talk about our product. And here are the rules that you need to follow. So it's not a blank check that you get. There are rules that you No, 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 no. There's absolutely huge rules, but, they're putting trust that you're going to do that and you're not going to get they're, they're not going to get sued as a result of your actions, absolutely right so you there's all these there's a huge amount of trust that goes into that and so if you you have to have coming from industry you have to have either um disease area expertise yep. so for instance fashion mom hired me because i had a phd in the retina mm-hmm. so it worked right um i knew the eyeball I, it's, it's okay. I could discuss eyes. So I could go into an office and say, yes, I have a, doc- a doctorate in ophthalmology and they would listen to mm-hmm. me. Um, or you have to have MSL experience. And then, so you don't have to learn how to do the job. You just learn how to learn the C state. You can't learn both things. Sure. Then no, no one's going to hire you if you don't have both uh, one or the sure. other. But I didn't realize that at the time. So I wasted a lot of time. In yeah. Yeah. So then, um, I mean, for me, I think a good MSL has exactly what you were just describing. You know, this is a person who has social skills, a person who understands uh, body language, a person who can speak about the science uh, down in the weeds at like the very you know, molecular level. If you want to talk phosphorylation events, sure, we can do that. Or I can talk to you, Mr. or, you know, a really doctor, small town who, you know, sees everybody in like, hundred mile radius who just wants to know if it's affordable. Like, so you could talk to yeah. all those people about how this drug or this device is worth their effort and worth trying to get for their patients. Um, and I think the other thing that both you and I had that uh, really rings through to people is enthusiasm about what you're discussing. You know, if you're genuinely excited, about the science and what went into the creation of this new pharmaceutical product or this new device. I mean, I think it'll show. And that Mm. to me is something that you really pick up on because doctors, you've probably noticed this too, Alice, doctors can smell BS from a mile away. You know, (laughs) they they can. And and some of my doctors, uh, you know, that I became really good friends with would quiz their sales reps on things that maybe weren't necessarily something that they always talked about because they wanted to make sure that the person they were talking to was legit. And nothing makes you seem more legit than handing a business card over and saying, I have a PhD in the retina. You know, I have a PhD in regular mushroom cells. 
you know, then people kind of stop and say, Ooh, so oh. when you go back to trust, they need to trust the doc, your clients, your doctors, you know, your optometrists, your ophthalmologists, yeah. whoever you're talking to need to trust that, you know, your stuff and you know what you're talking about, because otherwise you can't talk deep science to somebody who, you know, maybe doesn't have the same kind of deep research background that you and I had. So I think, um, candidates for a good MSL would be someone who doesn't mind traveling and being away from home, someone who, you know, enjoys talking to people who can explain things well, who enjoys being face to face or, you know, occasionally virtually with people. Um, but what else do you think uh, makes for a good, a good MSL? Yeah, I think you've, you've nailed it. Also, um, the ability to, I think the main one, and you actually mentioned it, is the main one for me is to be able to tailor to your audience. Yes. Sometimes you have three minutes. Sometimes you have an hour. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes someone wants to hear every single nitty gritty and every single little bit of conference paper and publication that came out and be up to date all the time. Sometimes they just don't yes. care. They want to talk about side effects. Um, and actually, occasionally, it's just if you're maintaining a relationship, say, say like it's not just a business call at that point, and you've 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 done the business aspect of it, and then you're just having dinner and you want to have a chat. Sometimes they just need to know that you're a nice person, True. and like you can continue uh, that they can trust you and they can tell you things, mm -hmm. and that so when they call you up for an answer, you're going to give them the correct answer, and that they can trust your judgment on things and know that you're the person to call to make the connections. So one of the most important things I think I I bring to my role is making sure my physicians know that if they call me, I will do everything in my power to make sure it gets done in as quick a time frame as possible. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, and I think that's a good reflection on the company as well. So I now work for a company where we have that reputation mm -hmm. of anytime our physicians, I work on a rare disease, our physicians all say, um, oh, that company is amazing. Um, for they will get the job done. Mm -hmm. uh, and sorry, sorry, I work for, maybe I should rephrase that. I work for, I used to work for Horizon. We were acquired by Amgen recently. Mm -hmm. But anytime you talk to a physician, they're like, oh, the Horizon individuals, yeah, they're perfect. Leave it with them. They'll, they'll help me. They'll help me out. Wow. And that puts a little extra nice. impetus on you, right? Like, well, I better live up to those standards. That's, uh, that's pretty lofty. I know. Sometimes I feel like I shouldn't work as hard. <laughs> I shouldn't have worked as hard on some accounts because now they expect it of me the whole time. But I know for every per every physician who contacts me, mm -hmm. it's another patient that gets on therapy. Like realistically, it, it helps get a patient on therapy yeah. who might, may not have gotten on therapy otherwise. Yeah. So that's why for me, I really like working on a rare disease because it makes such a change to their life to get on therapy. Can I ask what, what is the rare disease that you work on? Oh, sorry. I work on a disease called thyroid eye disease. Okay. So um, it used to be called Graves orbitopathy or Graves ophthalmopathy. It, um, if you have, a lot of people have heard of Graves disease, yes. but one of the manifestations of Graves disease is that the fat and muscle behind your eye expands mm. and, and grows. And this causes the eyeballs to be pushed out. So there's a kind of bulged look to your yeah. eyes and um which used to you used to have to go through surgery which is a really invasive surgery you'd cut into the Ooh. skull to take out a fat muscle right yes um and the outcomes weren't great you might have to do that multiple times then you might have to have lid surgery or strabismus surgery to realign the eyeballs 
um it was a nightmare wow. these poor physicians uh, these poor patients i met one woman who had 70 odd surgeries on her eyes and oh. um, yeah and she's now legally blind as oh. a result uh my drug is an infused medication that um basically shrinks the fat and muscle back there and brings the eye back into the head it's it's amazing i love wow. it i love working on it. but yeah okay so i see i i just want to point out that exactly what you just did i could tell that you loved it because i could tell just from looking at you and from hearing your voice i could hear that you you empathize with these patients you know you can feel how difficult that must be and how painful that must be and so now you you're providing information about an intervention that's probably very costly and could be challenging to get depending on whether you're on medicare or you have different insurance providers you know but but you are there to provide the justification of why it's worth that doctor's time why that patient deserves to have that treatment no matter how many hurdles they have to go through and it's nice to know that someone like you is there to provide the mechanism of action to provide the literature to provide any sort of other scientific backup that's necessary mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. to help that doctor acquire that medication and so yeah i'm i'm feeling it <laughs> i love that but are they call it change champions something like Ooh. that yeah we're patient champions. patient champions i'm not i don't work with patients but we have patients who um we have advocates who advocate for the patients mm -hmm. yeah so yeah wow so that's awesome and then um and so, as you mentioned, you don't travel as much right now. You're trying not to travel as much right now because you have a, uh, you have two, two well, small children. I'll, I'll I'll step that back a little bit. I do travel, but I changed role to a smaller territory. Okay. So now I have six states, so I can do a lot of day trips. Um, so I a lot of my days look like getting on an eight a.m. flight to Portland and then back on a four o'clock, okay. um, running to various meetings so I can get back in time. It's just how I manage my territory. It doesn't have to be that way. You certainly don't have to do that. Um, I will often like get on a night late night flight, so I stay the night, get an early morning meeting, yeah, and then I come back. But I ask because you know, um, a lot of the a lot of the misconceptions that some people have about, or at least some women have about careers and industry is there they feel like they won't have any personal time or any downtime or there's this convention of you know I'll never be able to have it all you know I either have to choose a career or a family and we'll be able to have both and or you know they may not be able to have a career that's on an upward trajectory like yours is mm -hmm. and also have you know have have kids at home and so I, I I love meeting people who have managed to do that because I think it's really inspiring to people to see that it, it can be done it's hard oh, and okay. i don't know that anybody i don't know that anybody has it all true like they're they're like I, i'm not at home full-time i'm missing the day-to-day -day. like to be honest i don't want to be at home full-time i don't um i i don't want to do childcare full-time i don't think that is a i think it's nonsense that they think that's the place for women like mm -hmm. that someone would think that's the place for women um i feel very very strongly that women should get back into the workforce mm -hmm. um in order to not um exponentiate the gender divide of women leaving the workforce to have kids it just yeah um did you ever read the cheryl sandberg um I, I did not read lean in no uh lean in thank you um i read i know it's troublesome in some ways and she's a little bit troublesome yeah. but um it, I, 
there was a talk on this about like whether or not women should leave the workforce or whoever it is to leave the workforce to pay for so they can look after their kids so they don't have to pay for daycare mm-hmm. and but they're putting themselves five years behind in terms of the career trajectory yeah. for instance which is huge and it means you can never catch that up True. um yes i think the dichotomy in um in the across the world actually it's not just a us thing in europe women get great maternity leave but it's maternity leave it's not family leave um okay so maybe it should be split six months men six months women like have eh, i'm I'm getting off my soapbox here so i I think this is important another (laughs) thing that someone asked me recently was you know um in terms of like the gender divide because certainly academia is very male dominated and you know i I feel like an industry depending on the department i mean i feel like that at least that divide is is not as obvious you know at least where where i work and where i have worked um there's almost an equal amount uh, of men and women who do these different positions and i think that's Mm -hmm. i think that's so important because i like how you said that you feel that women should get back to work um so as to not perpetuate the stereotype of you know she had her kids now she's gonna stay home and yeah, like don't get me wrong like if you no, want to stay at home course. absolutely that's, that's no great. one's saying that's I'm wrong fully support, and right? that, is, um, that is what probably you were just home for four months on maternity leave that, that's a more than a full-time job right yeah it's, it's hard work and yeah, no one's ever told. <laughs> and when i came back to work i spoke to some of my colleagues and i was like god this is so nice i remembered how much i i love doing this yeah, job yeah um, and someone told me once, like, they, they actually like going back to work because, you know, they can speak to adults and they can, you know, go take a shower, put their makeup on, get dressed, you know, go out and feel like themselves again. That doesn't make you any less of a mom or any less of, you know, a, a spouse or a caring individual. It just means that, you know, this is just another hat that you wanted to put back on. And if you don't want to put that hat back on, that's obviously that's your prerogative. That's perfectly fine. But I'm thinking that most of the people who are listening are the ones who will want to go back to work and they might just be a little concerned about whether or not, you know, that's something that's feasible. And overall I'm hearing it's feasible, but yes, it is hard. I need to have a very understanding partner. Yeah. (laughs) One of my friends told me recently that she thinks my husband is a saint. I was like, um, okay well i do a lot too well, don't tell so, him that his you know. ego will blow up <laughs> <laughs> just i think she's like i just think it's so hard being at home alone with your kids i'm like yes but they're your kids and they're his kids yep. and we both can equally parent them um i will say this is number two for me so i have i have a lot less mom guilt um about going back to work number one i felt it was hard for me to get out of that feeling of oh my gosh, should I be at home being a parent to this person that I brought into the world? And um, I read some, I didn't read a lot of books, um, but uh, it's called Crib Sheets, I believe, Emily something or another. And she is um, an economist who put together all of this uh, data on like how kids should be brought up and how like the outcomes, um, it's great. I, and I, I read that and she said something about the fact there was a, some paper done. I didn't read my own papers. I just read her summaries. <laughs> it was great. Um, some paper about the outcomes of kids who are raised by their parents or by like a daycare or a nanny in the house, a well-educated 
in childcare development, nanny in the house, and there was no difference in the outcomes. Oh. So long as the person looking after them was fully engaged and looking after their developmental needs. Sure. So it didn't, that kid doesn't need a parent. They just need someone who is invested in them. And I think personally, I'm a better parent for being able to go out and live my own life and live my own, do my job and then come home and be a parent yeah. for a shortened period of time yeah. rather than being a parent for it. 24 hours a day. I, I think that's really telling because I, I I remember meeting a woman once who said that, you know, she, she felt like even though her job was incredibly difficult uh, and it required her to work all kinds of hours and, you know, early mornings, late nights, you know, and, and she was a doctor. So, you know, following up with patients and writing your, uh, writing up your notes at the end of the day, et cetera. But when she got home, she was so energized and yes, yeah, she was tired, but she was more present for the people in her life mm. because she had this time to flex those muscles, so to speak, and, you know, use that part of her brain, which meant that by the time she got home, she was ready. You know, she was ready to use that yeah. other part of her brain or use those other muscles. I look forward to daycare pickup. I look forward to the routine being yeah. initiated. We call it initiate the routine when we get home, which is essentially you have 10 minutes of play and we start dinner time, bath time, bedtime. Yeah. And it's the same routine every day, but we know it. She knows mm -hmm. it. He will know it when he gets older. Um, and it's fun for everybody and kids thrive in routine. Okay. So I guess that's us trying to have it all. Um, but of course there's just don't miss there's aspects of it that we don't have because we work. I can't remember the name of the comedian right now, but she, it's going to bother me. But I saw a clip of her doing stand up and she said something. It was essentially exactly this about having it all. And she said, you don't want to have it all. And the joke was, have you ever met anyone who's left an all you can eat buffet saying, I feel good about my decisions. I, I think I've seen it's that. One. <laughs> and I loved that. I absolutely love that because you know, I mean, obviously it's really funny, but I mean, it's, but it brings up a really good point. Like I did absolutely everything I could and I pushed myself to the limit and I made myself so uncomfortable and man, that was a, that was good. You know, so no, you know it's perfectly fine to, to leave some potential things off the table and know what your limits are. And it's, it's also perfectly fine. fine. But I wanted to you ask you about that as someone who's recently postpartum, I wanted to ask about, uh, coming back to work after having kids. Cause again, I think that's just a consideration for, you know, young women who are thinking about transitioning to a career in industry and just making sure that they have the right support system in place to make that happen. If that's something that they want to do. And I, uh, I didn't grow up like that. My mother worked part-time mm -hmm. so that she could be there when we came in. And that for me was probably the hardest decision knowing that I'm not going to be there when she gets in, when my kids get in from school every day, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, but because I'm having a career, there'll be other aspects to it that they'll be able to see and hopefully be proud of. of um, and also from a working perspective, if you're earning the money, you can pay people to do things. So, and hopefully pay good people to do good things True. for you. Um, I saw a, a conversation, it was 
one of these women conferences and it was an executive talking and she said i pay people these days so that i have more time um and if you are in a when you get to a position where you can if you can pay people to clean your house or pay to have your groceries delivered or something just to get time back so that you can focus on things that you really want and that for me it was a huge change shift when i moved to industry suddenly i could afford these things so i could pay to have my time back absolutely as opposed to i certainly couldn't um absolutely in fact um uh, my friend Julie Tatsloff, uh, who runs her own CRO with her husband, she says something very similar. You know, they they stick to their routine, and she is willing to pay for certain uh, conveniences because it allows her more time to spend with her kids and with her spouse, and you know, doing the things like you say, doing the things that she genuinely loves to do. And so that's uh, that's just a side benefit of you know, working in a working in an industry where you you are paid what you're worth and that's and okay. it's annoying because you know you can do these things yeah, you absolutely, and you know it's a waste of money um like i should be able to clean my house every week but please i don't i don't even have kids but i don't <laughs> i don't have that i don't have nearly your excuse my cleaner is my favorite person in the world what can yeah, i say right? so, and it was adjustment learning that actually we have to pay for these conveniences yes. but yes so is there anything else that you want our listeners to know or any other advice that you would want to give a young neuroscience major who's thinking about who wants to be an msl i can give you know what's funny i have um when i was talking to people trying to get become an msl and i was learning how people did interviews what a woman gave me what i thought was the best advice in the world and she said everybody listen and then don't do this. Um, so what she told me was, she was like, sometimes they don't want to talk to you about science. They just want to talk about your, their dog. And, uh, so you just have to learn, like you'll chat about their dog for a bit and then you say, okay, but next time we're going to cover X, Y, Z. And I thought this was so insightful and like brilliant as an MSL. Like, of course, it's all about making the people connection. And so the next interview I had, it was with, the it wasn't the hiring manager it was before i got there it's just recruiter and i gave this as an example and she said of like how would you do the role and she said and i said oh well actually like i think it's all about the people connection and maybe they just want to talk about their dog Mm -hmm. and then next time you'll get to the science well obviously i did not get a call back um because that's absolute nonsense people are a company is hiring you to do a job they are not hiring you to talk to a physician about their pets they want to get to the point and obviously on a day-to-day that's might be what you do mm-hmm. but in an interview you want to give the perfect answer of you go in you pinpoint what their need is you immediately get there um and then you delve deeper into what what are other aspects you could be helpful with right absolutely i think that's a so good don't idea. Do that. yeah. i think that's a good <laughs> approach to msling because the, the, the point being you know if so let me let me give a better example because um, even though I will talk about my dogs all day any day, show me pictures of your dogs. I'll show you pictures of my dogs. I mean we'll have a great conversation. But um, <laughs> but I think there there are some there there is some knowledge there to be gleaned because if you know that you have a doctor who maybe is between patients and they're running like two hours behind and you know they they're like Alice you've got thirty seconds what what do you need from me? I think it's perfectly fine to say you know what. Maybe I'll catch you next time and we'll do coffee. You know, I, I think that's perfectly acceptable because what you're showing them is you are respectful of their time. 
You know, you're not trying to push yourself in front of somebody. And this is what Sarah Sarkey and I talked about with regards to body language. If they are just not into it right now, they're literally being dragged from one place to another. Sometimes the best thing that you can do to show that you respect them as a person, you can say, you know what? Let's do this next time. It's okay. You know, and then you go on and visit some other people who have more time for you. And I think that's perfectly fine. But, and then also hopefully they're respectful of your oh, time yeah. and they won't schedule you again when they're in the middle of everything. Crazy. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, and if a doctor is not respectful of your time. Because your time is valuable as well. You're taking time away from your family. You've got other places you could be. And learning that, I think as you get more seasoned as an MSL, you realize that uh, actually you don't have to put up with some of the things that you think you have to put up with. That's true. Um, and if someone consistently does that to you, don't go back to yeah. them. You don't, you don't need them. That's fine. Yeah. But it's like any relationship. You can tell if they're just not that into you. It's <laughs> true, right? <laughs> if they keep blowing you off, yeah. that's a pretty good sign that they're just not that into you and it's time to move on. Maybe they, they can knock down a notch or two on your list. And that's, that's fine too. <laughs> There's other people who are lovely and interested in research and more than happy to talk to you. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's no point in flogging a dead horse when you can make impact in other ways Absolutely. with different people. Absolutely. So Dr. Alice Wise-Jackson, thank you so much for joining us today and letting us reminisce a little bit about uh, the good old days at Vashalam. It was so much fun to see you. I think everybody says they have the good old days, don't they? It was nice. It was a good team. It was. And, you know, I was just at the Academy of Ophthalmology and I did see some of the old crew. And, uh, oh, yeah, a lot of, lot of hugs, a lot of, oh, we missed you. It's so good to see you. And, oh, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a really good time. So thank you for thank you for joining me today and it was good to see you. Yeah, thank you. Bye bye. Thank you again to Dr. Alice Weiss Jackson for joining me today and for sharing some of those insights. And thank you all for listening.